Hey everybody, my name is Chris, lead pastor at Trinity, and just so thankful uh, to be in God's house with you uh, today. It is good to be together. Uh, is in the first service, uh, as we were singing that last song, which I just love so much around us asking the Lord to open up our eyes so that we would see Him. Uh, my, my heart was drawn to a passage that I want to read here in 1 Corinthians 13, where St. Paul says this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And then he says famously, And now faith, hope, and love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. And it just feels really important for me right now to say that our best efforts, the most awake spiritually among us, even that uh, pinnacle of passion that we may feel occasionally for God is just nothing more than seeing through a glass dimly. And on the other side of that, if we are facing hardship or disappointment, if we're going through pain, I just want to say this to you. What waits for you as a, as a person of God, a child of God, is greater and more beautiful and more powerful than you could ever imagine. When Paul says, I see, we see through a dim glass, um, what he's saying is what's on the other side in the resurrection is more beautiful, more powerful, more full of life. And I just have this sense that every one of us, when we step into God's great future, is going to be um, astounded at how good it is. We're, we're going to wonder why we weren't more awake on this side. And, and yet there won't be any shame in that. Uh, there will be just an invitation to join in to something more powerful and beautiful. I just want to say that if you belong to him, Regardless of where your story is right now, it is headed in a beautiful, powerful, unhindered, connected direction. And that is something that I believe as Christians we're meant to hold on to, we're meant to wrestle with, we're meant to contend for. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans 7. But before we do that, I want to remind you or actually tell you about something. On the 8th and 9th of September, so a couple of months out, we are going to have the consecration of a bishop in this, in this room, in this building. It's, it'll be the most fancy Anglican thing that you will have ever experienced, especially if you're used to coming to Trinity, seeing me standing here in a t-shirt. Uh, this will be like Anglican fancy stuff. And I just want to invite all of you to come. Uh, on the 8th, we're going to have food trucks and bluegrass. Our Bishop Todd is going to give a talk on the 8th, which is a, a Friday night. And then on Saturday morning, we're going to have a consecration of a bishop uh, here in this room. So in the diocese of which we are a part, C4SO, Churches for the Sake of Others. I didn't name it. Somebody else did. Um, we have been working with one bishop for many years. Our, our group within Anglicanism spans 16 states. We have over 60 churches. And Todd gets spread so thin, our bishop. And so we have been praying for and hoping for a bishop election for a long time. That's just been approved. And a, a man was elected called um, Brian, and he is in Austin, Texas. And he is going to be helping Todd and our diocese with pastoral care and formation and church support. And it's going to be really good. He's a really good and godly man. 
Um, and they could have had him consecrated as a bishop anywhere, and they chose Atlanta. And so we're going to be hosting that event here, and it's going to be a party, and then it's going to be a, a, a fancy Anglican thing. Our Archbishop Foley Beach lives in Loganville, and he's going to be here. He actually is here occasionally. He wears like normal clothes when he comes, and I'll look out sometimes and see this man that's kind of in charge of a thousand churches just sitting out there with his wife worshiping with us. Well, he's going to be here uh, in all of his Anglican glory as we consecrate a bishop, and I would just encourage you to come. Um, it's going to be a really good time, a time of celebration, and I think it would be really fun for our church to be a part of it in uh, mass. So we'll tell you more as we get closer, but the 8th and 9th of September, mark your calendars. We're going to have food trucks and bluegrass, and then we're going to uh, see a bishop consecrated, which will be um, for many of us probably like a, a, a once in a blue moon sort of thing to see. Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 7. We're going to hear um, Paul say something that I think is so ridiculously applicable and human uh, that I hope you're able to hear it. Um, if you're one of those types that lives in your head and like, I know these people, uh, you're out there. Um, it's like really enthusiastic Christians that just wear out the book of Romans because you just think it can, you can think all the nerdy thoughts in the world. And then you become so fixated on like the nerdy parts. Um, here's what I want to say to you. If you could just take a deep breath and relax a little bit, Paul in this moment is speaking about the human experience and how God wants to engage the human experience. Paul's not emphasizing systematic theology here. He's talking about what Jesus wants to do in your actual lived life. There is theology. We're going to look at some significant theology, but don't ever forget that thinking about God, that's all theology is, theology, the study of God, is ultimately about teaching us who God is and showing us who we are and why we need him. So let's just ask God for grace to tell us some stuff about sin and about what Jesus has come to do and what the Holy Spirit has come to do as we discover our own need for him. Amen? Amen. Don't be intimidated. This is beautiful and powerful. Paul says this, I do not understand my own actions. Right away, I'm like, oh, yes, I'm with you on this. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask you to help us. 
We pray, God, that for those of us who don't like to think about sin because it makes us feel uncomfortable or it makes us feel like failures or it makes us feel ashamed, we pray, God, that we would be able to hear Paul today and that we would see how Paul is expressing something that is so real and visceral and human. And we pray, Jesus, that you would help us to better understand you and at the same time to better understand who we are and why we need you. God, I pray that you would help us to think clear and true thoughts today. And I pray, God, that you would, by your mercy, help us to live our lives in light of true things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Paul is writing on a couple of different levels here. He has just in the previous words before this passage spoken about the law of God and he's thinking of the Mosaic law, like the law that came to Jewish people that we see in the Old Testament and how the law came to Israel and, and did things. Now he is speaking about both that and also his own personal struggle and so one of the things that we're meant to see here is that Paul, when he speaks about the struggle with sin, he's speaking on a big level and on a personal level. One of the gifts of the Bible is that the Bible has always got layers to it. There's always a layer of application that continues to trickle from the macro down into the micro. And so what I want us to do today is to allow God to show us things, both things about us as the people of God and also about you as a person of God. It's very important for us to think about this. This is, I believe, an invitation for us to ask this question. This is what I believe Paul is actually wrestling with. The, the main question that Paul is addressing in this section of his letter to the Roman church is this. What do we do with the inner struggle between a desire to follow God on one hand and a tendency towards sin on the other hand, the places where we do the things we don't wanna do. And as we think about sin, I think it's really important for us to recognize that sin is not just the stuff you do, it is that. So like if you're robbing liquor stores, that's, that's sin. Uh, sin's also embodied in the things that we believe or the attitudes that we have uh, that fall short of God's standard and his plan for us. Uh, the word in the New Testament for sin, hamartia, means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. It means you aim and you miss. And we sin in lots of different ways. And yet, as I alluded to in my prayer a few minutes ago, we're all oftentimes very uncomfortable thinking about sin because sin stirs shame in us. So we become kind of arm's length with it. We try not to get too close to it. We try not to think about it. So then when we read a passage like this, we're confronted with something that actually makes us feel uncomfortable, maybe even leaves you cold. What I want to do in the next few moments is invite you to wrestle with Paul with that fundamental question. What do we do with the inner struggle? And if you're honest with yourself, you know that you experience this inner struggle. What do we do with the desire to please God on one hand and a tendency toward missing the mark or sin on the other hand? That's the question Paul is inviting us to hold. It's the question that he's not afraid to wrestle with in his own life. And as we will see both this week and next, God has really good stuff to say to us as we come more in touch with our own vulnerability and our own struggle the places where we fall short, where we sin, where we miss the mark. So 
Let's look at the passage itself. Um, it's also really important for us to understand that Paul is naming his struggle with sin as a person who loves God. Paul was a devout Jew, and now he's a devout Christian. He was a, a follower of the law, the law of Moses. And now Paul begins to use law, not just in terms of Moses' law, the Jewish law, all the regulations, but he's now using law in the sense of the standard of holiness, the standard of rightness that God calls all people to, the good life, if you will. So let's look at the text. Number one, Paul begins by stating his conscious desire is to follow God's way. He says this in verse 15, I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want. So he has a desire to do the right thing, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul's experiencing here as he desires to follow God. And I know that this is true for most all of us in this room. Not, not many of us wake up and say, how today could I violate God's way? How, how am I going to make a total mess out of my life? And yet we do. Paul is now pointing to a kind of inner turmoil, a conflict that every single one of us who loves God and desires God um, experiences on a daily basis. His desire is to say yes to God, and yet there are parts of his life that say no to God. Now, I know none of you can identify with this. Paul and me, we're alone in this struggle. This is so fundamental to what it means to be people living in a fallen world. He longs to say yes to God and by consequence, no to sin, but he's confounded by his tendency to do just the opposite. So in the last chapter, the one right before this, the section actually right before this, Paul says this, that when the law of God came, and here he's speaking of Moses' law, the Jewish law, all the regulations to set the Jews apart, make them clean and holy. He says that when the law came, sin saw an opportunity and seized an opportunity and caused people to become more and more aware of their sin, the fact that they fall short of God's Goodness. Now, we might be tempted to say, as people were 2,000 years ago, well, that's the problem. The law is the problem. If there was no standard, we wouldn't know that we were falling short. The law is bad. Rules are bad. Holiness is bad. Paul doesn't agree with that. Paul says, the fact that I want to live God's good way, even though I fail to do so, the fact that I desire it, and I would say to you, the fact that you want to be holy, the fact that you want to do what God wants, even if you consistently fail to do that or be that, the fact you desire it, that virtue in and of itself tells us that God's ways are good, that God, his standard is good. The law is good. God's plan and desire for your life is good, even if, maybe especially when we consistently fall short and do not live into the plan that God has for us. And that leads us to the second movement. God's law points us to the good life. God has a standard. Y'all, we don't get to just make up and aren't left to make up our own standard of what the good life is. The world outside the kingdom of God tells us that the good life is the acquisition of material goods and a great reputation. And um, some of you have already fallen victim to threads. You know, it's been out three days and you're just like, ah, I need to have people like my opinions. The world tells us that we're as good as what we have, what people say about us, what people think about us. But God's standard is totally different. He has a plan for your life and it is a good plan. When God says, follow me, be faithful to me, 
be holy, grow in your life with me. It is because he desires good for us. And yet we fall short of God's good plan. What Paul is saying here is that he wants this good way, but then there's this inner stuff going on him that moves him away from the good way. But his intentions tell us that God's way is actually good. And I would say to you, your desire to be faithful, your desire to be faithful to your spouse or to your friends, or your desire to walk in rightness and goodness in and of itself points to the fact that God's way is really good and we fall short of his goodness. But his way is good. His plan for us is beautiful. And like we said a few minutes ago, when Paul elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 13 says, I see through a glass dimly, but one day I will see face to face. What we see here is that God's good way, which is fuzzy to us sometimes, will one day be unrestricted and unhindered. Your story and mine is moving in a direction, if we belong to the Lord, of unhindered goodness and beauty. You're one day going to hit the mark as a child of God in the resurrection. For now, we get to be like Paul. We get to wrestle with things that are hard, that sometimes don't all the time make sense. So let's hold this for just a moment. God's desire for your life is good, and the virtue that such a life would manifest is also beautiful and good. And yet, we miss, which leads us to the third movement. Paul says, it's not me but it's sin that dwells in me that causes me to miss the mark. Now, Paul is not letting himself off the hook. He actually says this over and over and over again in Romans. We're not saying just because sin is there that we're sort of, uh, you know, the devil made me do it. We're just like, um, we have no responsibility for our lives. Paul doesn't believe that. I don't believe that. I actually don't think you believe that. We actually are accountable for the trajectory of our lives. And yet Paul is making a very significant and important statement. This is what he's saying. Sin, missing the mark, has taken up residence in me. Uh, uh, let's read a quote from Leon Morris, one of my favorite biblical scholars. He says this, This sin that lives in him, though it is not the real Paul, is what produces the acts which the real Paul hates so much. Sin is out of character for the believer, even though it is so difficult to be rid of entirely. Leon Morris in his commentary to the Romans actually begins to refer to your real self, the part of you that is bought the core essence of who you are, bought by Jesus, redeemed by him, is the rightful tenant under the leadership of God. And yet sin is like a squatter that shows up in our house. And what Paul is naming here is this inner tension that there is a squatter at play within the landscape of his life and that that squatter is causing problems. Sin is not in the believer. If you are a child of God, sin is not an honored guest. It is not a paying tenant. But when squatters take up residence in our lives, it's a pesky frustrating and potentially devastating scenario. In a course that I took in my time 
away from work a, a year and a half ago through Fuller Theological Seminary, one of our professors said when sin is manifesting in our lives, whether it's behavior or if it's an attitude or a belief that falls short of God and leads us down roads like self-pity or self-preservation, things that make us less than who God wants us to be, that we have an opportunity to recognize that and then to intentionally refuse hospitality, to turn our back on sin. When I turn my back on a belief that is moving me away from God's best, I'm not pretending that that thing is not there. To do so is to be naive. To not acknowledge the reality of sin as a squatter within your life is naive. It actually doesn't change reality. It just makes you more ignorant or more vulnerable. What we can do is name that there is something there that should not be there and it's hard to dislodge and simply choose to not extend hospitality or welcome to it. When a squatter is at play, naming the squatter and refusing hospitality to the squatter is the best initial way to deal with it. What Paul is doing here is he's telling us to be real about our lives. He's actually inviting us to be honest about our lives. He's inviting us to be real grown-ups when we think about the things we experience. And here's what we're experiencing. So Paul says these words, So I find it to be a law, not the law of God that he's just been referring to, but like something predictable, that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. So the fourth thing that we see here is something that I think you feel in your bone. There is an ongoing struggle between the different parts of us. Paul here is saying, when I endeavor to do the right thing, and I want to, I recognize that evil is close by. So the language here in the passage is this. Paul's basically saying, I've thought it all through, and the data would suggest that when I want to follow God, there is an enemy nearby me that is looking to divert me and pull me away from God's plan. This statement of Paul is like a summation of the facts has led him to this conclusion. And I believe there's an invitation for each and every one of us to recognize that when we belong to God and desire his goodness and fall short and, and move in a direction that moves us away from the life that he has to us, that that is because we have an enemy and an adversary that is nearby trying to subvert and fragment us, trying to disintegrate us. So Paul is pointing to a tension that we all feel disintegration. When you think about something disintegrating, it's just falling apart. But maybe thinking about your own life, if God has got a hold of your life and there are tensions and divisions in your life, he's wanting to move you from disintegration to integration. If you believe that God is good, and I would say to you that one of the great disciplines of the Christian life is to continue to revisit a conviction and a belief that God is good, that his ways are good, that he invites us to be good even as we fall short. If we believe that God is good, I believe we're also invited to believe that we have an enemy and an adversary. But here's the problem, y'all. When we think about the devil, we think about like a little fellow with horns and red tights and a pitchfork. And that's such an absurd idea that we're just like, I don't believe in cartoons. 
Now, if you were the devil, wouldn't you make your picture so silly and absurd that people like us would just dismiss it right out of hand? Yeah, I think we would. Our faith is built on having an advocate and an adversary. There's a reality, a framework here that tells us that God has a plan and advocates and the enemy also has a plan and evil is close at hand. We don't need to become fascinated or obsessed or superstitious or childish when we think about our adversary and yet to not make room for opposition, I think is to be naive and many of us live our lives in a highly reactive way and we wonder why we are falling short and finding shame take root in our lives and not experiencing the good life that God has. I believe it's because we're oftentimes ignorant of the enemy's devices and his plans. So Paul speaks of this reality of this internal struggle between a desire to follow God and this other thing that pulls us towards sin. And he attaches a kind of motive or agenda to that war, that turf war. And I think that's actually a great way to understand it. We all experience contended ground as we live our lives. And when we don't acknowledge it, we actually hurt ourselves because we don't then ask God for the help that we have and has been made available to us. So here's what Paul says as he speaks to the turf wars. He says, I want to follow God. God's law is good. I'm sinning. There's tension. There's this division in me. All of that adds up to this statement where Paul shouts it. Now he's writing a letter, but if he were writing a letter, it'd be like all caps on Twitter or threads or whatever it is that I don't think you should be a part of, but you probably are. Um, He would say this, and this is what he says. He shouts, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? That last question, who will rescue me from this body of death, is meant to sound like a rhetorical question because everyone reading Paul would be like, yeah, I feel exactly the same way. I want to follow God. I'm not following God like I want to follow God. We're lost. The implied rhetorical answer to who will rescue me from this body of death is no one. The implied answer is we're too far into life and this isn't working out and we're just doomed. Everybody listening to Paul who is trying to sort it out, trying to work it out, trying to be good, trying to follow the way and not following the way, trying to just up our effort notch one bit at a time to get somewhere better and finding that we always fall short. The implied answer is we're just up the creek without a paddle. But Paul says this, just as loud as he says, wretched man that I am, he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The last thing we see in this text is that Jesus rescues. Jesus has something to say about your desire, God's way being good, sin dwelling in you and causing you to miss the mark and feel shame and be disconnected and all the destruction that that carries, that he has something to say about the division and the turf war that we feel that Paul felt every single day as parts of us want Jesus, the truest parts of you want Jesus. But then there are these other things, these squatters that don't want Jesus, that just want to feel better or want to hurt people that hurt us. 
And these other squatters, they ruin marriages. The squatter ruins the desire for purity and clean living before God. The squatters are devastating, especially when we don't name what they are and who they are. To all of that turmoil, all of that exhaustion, all of that disappointment, Paul says Jesus has something to say about your life. He actually goes on. Some of my favorite verses in the Bible we're going to look at next week, right after this. And you just need to know, when Paul or, or, or Luke or whoever was writing the Bible was writing the Bible, they didn't say, okay, this is chapter 7 and this is verse 25. They just wrote. It was people later that put chapter and verse breaks to help us understand, help us to find things. The next words out of Paul's mouth, out of his pen, in Romans 8 is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of liberty in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. My mom was an English teacher. Whenever you see therefore, you need to look backward to know what it's there for. And a lot of us grow up with like, there is therefore now no condemnation. You know, it's like if your grandma had something on her fridge, it would have been that. But you, you can't understand Romans 8 apart from the, the struggle of Romans 7. If we don't hold the reality of our sin and our fallenness and our need for God, then Romans 8 just doesn't feel like much. It's just like a pep rally that no one wants to attend. Oh, I'm not condemned. The only way you don't live as a condemned person is to know that you actually are apart from the work of Jesus, that Jesus has done something for us. He has something to say about your life. And I would argue, as Paul would, that it's Jesus and the Holy Spirit have something to say about your life. We're going to see that next week. Jesus wants you to bring him into your struggle. So here's part of how I do that. Uh, two huge sin struggles in my life are a, an, a false belief that I'm alone and a tendency towards self-pity. So I'm not robbing liquor stores right now. I gave that up for Lent a number of years ago, and I, on the rare occasion that I go into a liquor store, I buy, I pay, pay for what I buy. Um, but I, my tendencies which are harder to spot, are beliefs that are diminished and fallen and lead me down roads that are really dark. Loneliness and self-pity. So one of the things that I'm doing in my life is that when I feel those sins, I ask Jesus in prayer what he has to say about that. Jesus, what do you have to say about the feeling of isolation that I'm experiencing right now? And then I, I wait. I, I journal. I pray. Because the character and nature of God, the true good life, the, the true telos of God, has, Jesus has something to say about the difference between that and whatever it is you're struggling with. And then we move beyond behavior modification to listening to what Jesus has to say about our lives. And if you don't know, find some mature Christians and say, what do you think Jesus has to say about what I'm struggling with? You'll begin to hear some stuff that'll begin to give you an opportunity to turn your back on and not extend hospitality to sin. 
And that's not works. That's just you cooperating with God so that he can move you into the life that he has longed for us all to have. So here's what I, wanna, what I want us to ask. Can you name, let's look at the question, can you name the places of internal struggle in your own life that are similar to what Paul is naming? So I think that it would be really good for us this week to actually say, can I feel the turf war in me? And what is that? Where's the struggle? And then I would just go, let's just like, we can bump the second question for a second. The simplest thing is I would just begin to be courageous enough to ask Jesus what he has to say about that struggle. Because what he has to say, I can guarantee you it's good. It's, it's life. It's truth. But oftentimes, we just don't ask Jesus what he has to say. Paul here, in one emphatic statement, says, thanks be to God for Jesus. He has something to say about your struggle. Mine too. So we're going to hold this question in silence for a few moments, and then we're going to come to this communion table. But I want you to hold this for just a few moments. Where is the struggle? And it'll probably lead you to asking and sensing where is the sin? Where am I experiencing that sin temptation that Paul invites us to see as he reflects on it in himself? So let's hold it for a few moments. Let's consider this. Get your phone out, take a picture. I would encourage you to journal and reflect this week on this question. But let's do it now just for a few moments.